Good morning. Good to be back with you all. I um, attended here last year, which is my first year at Sunset. Um, Ada didn't mention I'm um, a wife of one of the pastors here. And so we've been here for about a year and I've loved moms and it's really fun to be back with you guys um, today. I am sharing on a hard subject. Um, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a theologian but I have encountered some grief in my life. How am I doing? Okay. And so have you. So I'm just here like one of you to share on my experiences with grief. And um, I wrote a book on my grief process um, and that was really healing for me. If you like to write, I encourage you to do that. <coughs> Um, and try and put words to what you're going through. Um, and one of the things that I discovered when I wrote about it is that telling my story invited other people to tell their story too. And it built bridges between griefs because we all have grief. And so I'm, I'm grateful to Ada that I get to be here and share on grief this morning and share my story. And I really hope that what it does is open up something for you in your own journey and um, hopefully give you permission to share your story as well. So flourishing in grief, what in the world is that? It seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Um, I listened to Barbara Files talk at the beginning of the year and she had a great definition for flourishing. She said it means to grow or develop in a healthy or vigorous way, especially as a result of a particularly favorable environment. And the other words for flourishing were to grow, to thrive, to prosper, and to develop. So I asked myself the following question as I was preparing. How do we grow or develop in a healthy way in grief? Might we even be able to thrive or prosper as a result of grief? Grief is not a favorable environment, but we have to admit that growth happens there. Deserts really can bloom. I think we've skipped a couple slides. Nope, it's... Um, So that was the definition. And then if we move one more, yeah. So um, there you have some desert flowers. Um, it seems impossible that the desert would produ produce such beauty, right? But plants really do adapt to difficult conditions in the desert. And look how gorgeous they become. And these are just a few of the many varieties. In my experience, I'm here to say that there can be life and fruitfulness in the desert. And the products of these seasons are valuable. During some parts of the year, if you looked at a desert, you wouldn't know that anything was happening below the surface. And it really would look dead. But growth and life and beauty are happening below the surface. And God is a powerful germinator and he loves to bring life from the ashes. And it's because of him that we have hope even in grief. 
not a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope, but a real and deep and meaningful and lasting kind of hope. And it's a costly hope because God himself was willing to suffer and die to obtain it for us. So before you think I'm going to dance off into the sunset of a happy message on grief, I'm going to share a bit of my story with you. And before I do, I want to make one more caveat. One of the first things that you learn about grief is that it simply does not look the same for everyone. There are as many ways to grieve as there are people in the world and stories and circumstances and personalities. Everyone is unique, and it's easy to be tempted to compare our grief with others. Ours is either bigger or smaller, we're doing it better or worse, um, we're stronger, we're weaker, whatever it is, we tend to come out of comparison feeling worse about ourselves, and it really harms our grief process when we do that. So I'm hoping to leave you with a few insights, but I'm not by any stretch a good example of grief. I might even be a bad one. And either way, I'm just one story. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my story of grief, and I'm also gonna look at another story in the Bible, the story of Job, God's blameless servant who experienced terrible grief. But I'll begin with mine. So, this is our family, right before our world got turned upside down. My husband Steve was pastoring a church in the Philippines. We had three healthy boys, and I didn't know it at the time, but my life was really good. And grief gives you perspective sometimes. Um, those were good, good days, even though they were hectic and crazy and I was very busy with those three little ones. During a visit to the US in the summer of 2010, uh, my husband Steve had a catastrophic motorcycle accident and he'd severely damaged his spinal cord at the C6, C7 level um, and he was instantly rendered quadriplegic. In other words, he had no movement from the shoulders down. For two weeks, his life hung in the balance, and our entire focus was keeping him alive. Uh, once he was out of danger, we learned that he would need to spend another two to three months in the hospital before we could even bring him home. So we airlifted him to Seattle, to Harborview Medical Center, where Steve had um, pastored in Seattle for a long time, and we chose to be near our Christian community during this time of um, struggle and recovery, even over our family, um, because we knew we would need a lot of help. Friends in Manila packed up our home of six years and put it in the church basement. We had no idea what to do with our stuff. Family members flew out to help me with my three kids who were eight, seven, and two at the time. I slept at the hospital every night, every night for eight more weeks um, at Harborview in a lazy boy in the corner while the nurses came and went throughout the night to assist and reposition Steve. My formerly athletic husband could not roll over, sit up, he couldn't feed himself, 
scratch an itch, brush his teeth. He couldn't hold my hand. He was in constant and excruciating pain, and he had no sensation from the shoulders down. He couldn't feel hot and cold. His morning routine took two hours to perform before we could then finally lift him in a Hoyer lift, which is like a big, heavy crane type thing, to get him into a wheelchair. He needed daily shots, tons of medications. He had complicated, really hard to put on tights to keep his blood pressure up, and lots of contraptions to perform simple tasks. He needed to be stretched daily, rolled over and propped up in different positions every two hours, even during the night. So when he came home from the hospital 12 weeks after his accident, I had to take care of everything. I now had three young children and a quadriplegic husband. I was in a new home, in a new country. My kids were in a new school. We had no job, no possessions. Our foreign medical insurance had run out. I could go on and on about the hurdles and the difficulties that we faced during that time. But instead, I'm gonna jump forward a little because I could be here forever and show you what nine months of prayer and hard work and the help of an entire community did for us. That's Steve standing against all the odds and medical predictions. We experienced a miracle. Slowly movement returned, yeah. <laughs> Slowly movement returned for Steve. It started with an almost imperceptible little move of one toe and he spent hours and hours and hours daily in therapy for nine months and um, slowly, slowly, he could stand. Then he could take a few steps in time for our 10-year anniversary. He actually um, held me and like danced me around with just a few steps for our anniversary. Beautiful. And um, he could walk. It was amazing. And it was hard work. But none of this really tells you about grief. Grief is just another word for deep sorrow. And one of the first things that we need to do with our grief is be honest about it. So while we experienced an incredible miracle, there were significant losses, and these became permanent. And I don't talk about them very often, but I'm going to share some of them with you today. Because that's what we need to do, have the courage to share the losses. One of the obvious ones, one of the obvious things we lost was walking. We used to take hikes together all the time. We were outdoorsy people. He was super athletic. Steve also used to um, walk when he prepared his sermons. We used to do <coughs> prayer walks together. Um, we lost all of that. He can't walk that far. And so um, I walk on my own now or with my boys. Touch. Touch was Steve's love language, if you know the love languages. And um, he still doesn't feel much below the shoulders. No fine sensation, no hot or cold. I can't tickle him. I still try sometimes. Um, 
Massages are not very enjoyable. Steve was a professional musician for years and a worship leader. He used to play the guitar around our home all the time and make up silly songs for our kids. But his hands are stiff and it, he can't do that anymore. So that's a whole part of his life that we lost. He also was a um, cartoonist. He was published at nine and he went to art school in New York City as a very promising artist. And uh, he just can't really draw anymore. Um, he had a lot of energy and we lost the margins in our life um, when, um, when he, after his accident. Um, doing the simple things just maxed us out. Pain became a constant companion. Steve is in pain when he's sitting up, standing or walking. It means he needs to go to bed before me and he needs to wake up after me. He just needs more rest and he's also often up in the night um, because of his pain. He can't play sports with our three boys. We have three boys. Um, wrestle, run, play basketball. I don't get help around the house. He can't climb a ladder. Um, he can't do heavy lifting for me. In fact, when he can't open a jar, I open it for him. Um, happily, my boys are a little bigger now, so they help me out a little bit. And we had to divide to conquer, so we don't get to do as much together anymore. We also lost evenings because he needs to rest. He can do about one evening a week. Those are usually taken up with church things. We had a um, couple's Bible study that we had to stop because it happened in the evening and it was just too hard. So those are a lot of losses. Um, it's been 10 years, but um, I still feel them. It's still a process. And um, what you learn from great sorrow and grief is that there are a lot of emotions involved, a lot of very different emotions. And one of the famous descriptions of the grief process is Elizabeth um, Kubler-Ross's Five Stages of Grief. You've probably heard about them. It starts with denial and isolation, and then it moves into anger, which can be also um, turned against yourself, which is, can be guilt, for example. Um, then depression, then bargaining, and then acceptance. But that is an oversimplification of the grief process. And really, I love this image. It's usually portrayed on a line or a graph. But in this image, you see, and this is what she really intended, that you can feel all of those emotions in a day, in a week, in a month, in a year. And you may cycle back through ones at different times. And if you've experienced a significant loss, you will probably never fully emerge from that cycle. It'll just change a little bit. Um, there's no timeline attached to that one. Um, some people do really well for years, and then something happens, and their grief shows up years later. Other people grieve for a long time intensely. Other people grieve briefly, and most of us move in and out of grief. We move in and out and it takes us by surprise in its many forms. If I could do that graph, I'd probably just put a big scribble over it because grief is also really messy. 
C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer just shortly after they were married. And he said this, for in grief, nothing stays put. One keeps on emerging from a phase, but it always recurs round and round. Everything repeats. Am I going in circles or dare I hope I am on a spiral? But if a spiral, am I going up it or down it? One of the complications of grief is that we're not even sad all the time. We think that that's what grief looks like. I remember my first day in the ICU um, in the hospital, looking around the room and there were people playing cards. Some people were laughing. And I thought, how can they be doing that? But the truth is you can't be present to your grief all the time. And within days, I was one of those people too. Sure, sometimes I was crying, but sometimes I was laughing. In fact, um, joy and hope and relief can show up pretty early on in grief sometimes. <coughs> things you took for granted are suddenly really precious. People do kind things for you. Your friends and family come around and that gives you some joy. My mother lost um, her husband suddenly uh, two years ago and my brother and I flew in and um, we had an incredible time and we cried, but we also laughed, probably more than we've ever laughed together, ever. So it's a range of emotions and it's really unpredictable and over, it can be overwhelming sometimes. So it's important to remember that there's no right way to do it and we cannot prescribe it for ourselves or for other people. One grief can also hit on another grief, and I'm sure some of you guys know this too. Three years later, my middle son got type one diabetes. Uh, we didn't have it in our family at all. It's an autoimmune disease. And I got hit with a different kind of grief, and now I had two different griefs, one on top of the other. And I entered an earnest bargaining stage with God. God, I was so good during the first one. How could I have another? How could this happen? What if another thing happens? Um, a lot of people say God only gives you as much as you can handle. Well, it did not feel like that, nor was that anywhere in the Bible. So I found myself, <laughs> I hear an amen there. Um, so I found myself in the hospital again for a week learning more medical procedures. I was up in the night again for years. I was up in the night last night with my son. And I did somehow handle it. But it was complicated. So another thing that we just have to acknowledge about grief is that it's inevitable. Like it or not, we're all going to experience it. And I spent a lot of time on my story, but each of you could come up here and share your own story. And we would all be heartbroken over it. You might have a special needs child. You might struggle with depression or anxiety. You might have childhood wounds. You might be divorced or be experiencing infidelity. You might struggle with insecurity or relational brokenness. Any of you could share a heartbreaking story, and it's throughout scripture as well. The Psalms are a tremendous teacher on grief. Did you know 70% of the Psalms are laments? 
70%. That tells us that it's not only okay to grieve, it's normal. And when we can't find words for how to express our own grief, I think the Psalms are a great place to go. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Save me, God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. These are great places to be when we're in grief. They also have ingredients to the lament psalms, lament, invocation, confidence, praise, and petition. I've learned a lot about how to pray in the midst of grief from the psalms, and I encourage you to go there too. And not only do we have the richness of the psalms, we literally have an entire book of the Bible devoted to grief, and that's the book of Job. If you want to feel better about your life, read about Job. Job lost all 10 of his children, all of his possessions, his home, and his health in one fell swoop. And he grieved appropriately. He dressed in sackcloth and ashes. He moaned and wailed. We have pages and pages of it in our holy scriptures. He gets depressed. He bargains. He gets angry. He goes through all the stages of grief. And yet, scripture also tells us many times that Job was blameless. We want to remember that grief does not visit us because we deserve it. God loved Job and was so proud of him. So again, we see that there's nothing wrong with going through the phases of grief with God. They may be ugly, but they are normal and even necessary. There's a physician called Dr. Paul Brandt. He grew up in India and he worked with um, lepers. Lepers can't lose sensation over time. And he called pain our beloved enemy, our beloved enemy, because he noticed that when pain is absent, the consequences are extreme. And in fact, pain is needed because it tells us that something is wrong so that we can do something about it. Without it, we might touch a hot surface and not know that we are being burned. And emotional pain is the same. It wakes us up to the fact that something is wrong. And without it, we are numb, and numbness is far more dangerous. So Job feels his pain, and he expresses it unashamedly toward God. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. It's so important to notice from Job that we don't have to hide our anguish or our anger from God. We can even complain and cry out. In fact, it's really important to include God in the process. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to give you the message version. Paul is writing to some disciples that were upset, and he says this, You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain, no loss. 
Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back on the way of salvation. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regrets, end up on a deathbed of regrets. And now, isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has goaded you closer to God? You're more alive, more concerned, more sensitive, more reverent, more human, more passionate, more responsible. Looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart. I know that God really can work in and through my pain to bring about growth and fruitfulness, but he can't do it if I won't turn to him. It's natural to turn away for a time, but eventually we have to come back. Grief can cause us to turn away or it can turn us toward. And when we allow our pain to turn us toward God, it allows us to become more alive, concerned, sensitive, reverent, human, passionate, responsible, and it purifies our life. It's what allowed Job to say, Though I do not behold him, when he has tried me, I shall come out like gold. Pain has a purifying function if we let it. Things come into focus and we get a clarity. And it also sets us in right relationship with God. When things are well, we begin to think that we don't need God and we forget how small we are and how fragile our lives are. But when we turn to God with our pain, our trust and love for him can deepen when we allow intimacy to, to develop alongside our need, when we bring all of ourselves. I get to share a happier list with you now. Um, and if you're in the middle of pain, you might not be able to make a list like this yet, and that's okay. But here are some of the gains that I got from turning into God and letting him work through it. I got the gift of prayer. Not only did my own prayer life deepen, but a lot of people started coming to me asking me for prayer because they knew my story. And I got to grow in faith and I got to hold other people's stories too. And it gave me a lot of meaning and purpose and a whole new ministry. I had greater empathy one of the areas where my empathy really grew was for the elderly. I really got how hard it is to watch your body fall apart and all of the loss that comes as you grow old. Maybe it sounds ironic, but I got a lot more grateful. Every time I walk, and I'm not kidding, every time I take a long walk, I'm so grateful for my legs because my husband is at home not being able to walk. I'm so grateful he's still with me. I'm so grateful. I could actually go on and on about all the things I'm grateful for because of what I've been through. There's a lot to be thankful for. Suffering also slowed me down and it ruined some of my easy assumptions and I had to dig deeper. And that brought me just a tiny, tiny bit more wisdom. I'm also shy. 
but I wanted people to pray when Steve had his accident, so I started writing a blog. And a lot of people began to follow, um, thousands of people, and it gave me a voice. I wrote a book. I grew in humility. I learned my limitations and I understood the fragility of my life, and this has actually been a tremendous gift. I understood how much I needed God, and I watched him come through for me again and again. Steve and I leaned into each other in ways we never had before, and we grew in love. I carried more than I thought possible, and I grew in capacity. Finally, I got to see the church in all its shining glory. If you're suffering, there's really no better place to be than the church. We experienced so many acts of kindness. It still blows me away to think about it. There's an author named Jerry Sitzer. He's a professor who lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter in a car accident. And he says this about suffering, and I think it's so true. The soul is elastic, like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. Loss can enlarge its capacity for anger, depression, despair, and anguish, all natural and legitimate emotions whenever we experience loss. Once enlarged, the soul is also capable of experiencing greater joy, strength, peace, and love. What we consider opposites, east and west, night and light, sorrow and joy, weakness and strength, anger and love, despair and hope, death and life, are no more mutually exclusive than winter and sunlight. The soul has the capacity to experience these opposites even at the same time. So again, while there may be anger and depression and despair, we also find greater capacity for joy and strength and peace and love. Those are fruits, and if you ask me, that's a kind of flourishing. Maybe you're not grieving now, and maybe you've never endured a significant loss, but you know someone who has. So I want to take a moment now to look at um, Job's friends. They show us a little bit about what to do during grief when someone else is grieving, and they also show a little bit about what not to do. So they start off really well. They come to Job when he's suffering. Sometimes it's tempting to avoid people when they're in a lot of pain. It's uncomfortable. You don't know whether they want you to be there. And it can take some courage, but they came. And they empathized with Job. They wept aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They spent time with him. For seven days, they sat with him in silence before they ever opened their mouths. <coughs> they commiserated. Those are excellent ways to come alongside someone who is sad. Bring your presence, bring your empathy, and give your time. And if there are practical ways you can help bring those to, a meal, helping clean, running errands. I had one friend who gifted me with every other week cleaning service. It saved my life. 
A kind lady brought us a meal every Wednesday for months. Someone bought us furniture, which we still use to this day. We had to sell our house because it wasn't wheelchair accessible, but people went and fixed up the garden while I was in the hospital every day so that we could put our house on the market. A therapist gave us her time every week to work on Steve. Someone babysat our kids so that we could go out on a date. And an elderly man who was no longer allowed to drive donated us his wheelchair accessible van. Those tangible acts of service made us feel so loved. So they started out well, Job's friends, but it doesn't end so great. You can see their discomfort and their desire to explain away Job's grief and the catastrophe that happened to him. And they leaned into an easy theology of suffering, which is that if we suffer, it's because we deserved it. And if we're good, we can avoid it. The book of Job, of course, disproves this theory immediately because it says again and again that Job was a blameless victim. Sometimes life happens that way. People get what they deserve, but so often it doesn't. God rebukes those friends, saying, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God is furious at them for portraying him as punishing and vindictive. That is not who he is or what he was going to be for Job in that difficult time. And we can be unintentionally cruel sometimes too when we try to make sense of someone's suffering. We do it because we're uncomfortable. We want to control it. We get scared that something like that might happen to us. So we try to diminish it or control it by making it contained and understandable. Kate Bowler is another author that I've enjoyed. She was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at the age of 35 with a young boy. And she wrote a great book about it. She's a professor of theology at Duke, Duke University. Uh, the title of the book is great. It's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. <laughs> she explores suffering and how to come alongside others. So if you want to know more about it, you can read the book or listen to her podcast where she talks to other people who have suffered. She made a short list of what not to say to people experiencing terrible times. And here it is. Well, at least dot, dot, dot. In my long life, I've learned that dot, dot, dot. It's going to get better, I promise. God needed an angel. Everything happens for a reason. I've done some research and dot, dot, dot. When my aunt had cancer, dot, dot, dot. She actually didn't like, so how are your treatments going? Or how are you really? I think because she was just too exhausted to report back to people about it. I loved it when people asked. So I don't relate to everything on Kate's list. And you might have your own. But I do know that what she really valued and what she loves to teach on is empathy. And Brene Brown, of course, is the queen researcher of um, 
of empathy and she says this. I love this definition of empathy. Empathy has no script. There is no right way or wrong way to do it. It's simply listening, holding space, withholding judgment, emotionally connecting, and communicating that incredibly healing message of you're not alone. We can all do that, right? So do you know how Job ends? It's just a couple lines at the end of a whole book about grief. God blessed him with twice as much as he had before, and he lived many more years. And during that awful year that we had, um, God pointed out that verse to me a couple times. Not as a promise that he was going to restore double of what I had or make me somehow weirdly prosperous, but to tell me that our story of suffering didn't have to end in the way that it began. And on the first anniversary of Steve's accident, on June 17, 2011, I had just celebrated my 40th birthday, and we were in New York City, my favorite city. And I woke up, and I looked out of the window, and there was a double rainbow. The anniversary of Steve's accident. And I smiled, and I thought about the end of Job, and I imagined God smiling at me, too. And the truth is, there was still a lot of suffering ahead for me after that. But I had some hope, and I knew already that there was some fruitfulness, and that I wasn't alone, and God was going to use it. There is so much more that I could say. I cut and cut and cut. <laughs> and I glossed over a lot, too. So I'm going to end with three words that I have on a fridge magnet on my um, fridge. It says, learn from everything. No matter what you're enduring, you can always learn. This has really helped me keep my heart and mind open to everything that's happening, that God might be teaching me something. I have so much more to learn, and I'm so grateful to be learning under such a gracious God. So that's it. I want to end in prayer. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are never alone in suffering. I thank you too that you know what suffering is, that our tears are precious to you, that you are not angry or punishing but that you come alongside. Help us to bring every grief and sadness before you. Help us to receive your comfort. And when the time is right, Lord, help us to receive your hope. And Lord, help us to be good friends to others who are suffering. Give us courage to just sit with people and not give them easy answers. And thank you, Lord, that one day we will not suffer anymore. You paid a great, great price for that happy ending. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>